Morning. My name's Chris Taylor. I'm one of the elders here, for those of you who don't know that. And I'm shaking like a leaf up here. It's the problem drinking two cups of coffee and always being afraid of being in front of people at the same time in the morning. So I'm glad to be here. Um, last night, we had 10 or so of our neighbors over for dinner. My wife's an energizer bunny, and, she, and I dread these dinners, you know, not only because I have to cook the food. No, it's not cooking the food. It's just, I just dread the fact that it could be all these unbelievers, and we have to push forward and get the conversation real and deep. And we have this method, which we recommend to a lot of people. It, we just have questions that are on, a, 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 there's actually a game out there that provides the questions for you. You have to pull out all the bad and shallow yes and no questions and leave the ones that are deep. But one of the questions that came up last night was, was this, and we had quite an extensive conversation about it. So would you rather have your age, would you rather age going forward or going backwards? And I think the consensus of most of them, they said, well, let's go backwards and then we won't make any mistakes we made in the past, right? Because all they know the wrong decisions will make them all right, you know. And it struck me, and I shared, I said, well, I don't know if I would like that, because it's all those mistakes and those signal missteps and miscalculations and uh, sinful acts even that God has redeemed and, and changed me into a greater glory, you know. And, uh, and I think that's the way, in fact, I know that's the way God works. He works all things together for the good, doesn't he? And that's what his word says. And we can trust them, even in our sinful acts, in our missteps and miscalculations. And God is there to bless us. And I, by way of introduction, am thankful. I was just thankful for a man named Jim Durkin, who took me under his wings as a pastor, as my pastor, and and um, discipled me as a young man. My wife and I joined a Christian ministry that was a communal work. We all lived together. We all shared our money, same purse, had all these nonprofit, these tax-free businesses that we made a lot of money <laughs> to support all the people in the houses. And, and his testimony was this, basically. He was an Assembly of God preacher who found himself in a shack in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere, without a family, estranged from his wife and kids. And he had been an Assembly of God preacher. He had lost his church. He lost everything. And as he was praying there, his testimony was this, that God, one of the most clearest words in his life was this, that he said, Jim, here's why you are destitute. Here's why you've lost everything. He said, you, every time you preach my word, you added three words after that, but we know. And filled in the blanks. We know better or current culture, or modern times, or I'm offended, and, but we know I shouldn't have to. And he said, from now on, I want you to preach one message. Practice the word. Do the word. And I got to sit under that ministry. And the guy was an amazing preacher. Uh, and he used to say this. He used to say this in his borderline sort of prosperity doctrine. And faith doctrine. But he said life. If you do God's word. If you do it. Just determine to practice it. Even if there's no. Even if you don't understand it. Even if it makes no sense at all. Even if it contradicts all your common sense. Do it. And understanding will come. Faith will become sight. You'll look back in the autumn years. And you'll say. Ah, 
the door life opened behind me because I sought first the kingdom of God in that one area of my life, whether giving, a relationship, a marriage, business, work. And he'd always, his favorite psalm was Psalm 37, where he quotes David saying, I, am, I have been young and now I am old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their seed begging bread. And he'd say, your life is a predictable certainty. That will be your confession in the autumn of your years if you trust God's word and do it. So Brent, you're getting baptized. You're getting dunked today. This is a good word for you, and I'll uh, dedicate it to you for a great life so you can... In the autumn of your years, look back and see a good and faithful God who is also faithful to his word. Matthew, we're resuming our series study on Matthew. And Matthew, of any, of any of the synoptic gospels, has more quotes in the Old Testament than them all put together. In the introduction, the first four chapters before the Sermon on the Mount, where, we're gonna, where our text comes from today... Half of them are there. There's five quotes from the Old Testament saying this was done so it would be fulfilled in the prophet. He quotes Isaiah twice, Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah. But that's not the most remarkable thing. At the baptism of Jesus, as you heard in some of our teachings, God the Father pronounces over his son ten Greek words. This is my son, my beloved one, in whom I am well pleased. And to any Jew of that day, they would have known that God the Father was quoting Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, which are the messianic verses about the Davidic king who would restore all things in Psalm 2. And then the servant in Isaiah 42, the suffering servant, the lion and the lamb. I mean, God the Father could have spent an hour pronouncing how great, how marvelous the son, but God the Father submits to his own word. He preaches the word, 10 Greek words from the Old Testament to announce Christ's ministry. But also remarkable is Christ's temptation, as we heard a while back. Christ Jesus responds to the devils to 10 temptations with three verses from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. And as I spoke back then, it was not so much that he had, he quoted a specific verse, which we tend to focus on, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, right? What was phenomenally important for us to learn from that, that he didn't just share a specific verse, but he had a specific verse to share. Do you see the nuanced difference? Jesus had a catalog. He had a reservoir of the Old Testament scriptures in him. So that when the specific temptation from Satan came, he had the word to speak. And so is his design for us. He incarnated the word. He lived the word. As Ryan said earlier, he loved the word. And these four chapters where Matthew exalts the Old Testament scriptures were really an introduction to Matthew. In a, in a sense, he prepares us for the words today, which are Matthew five seventeen through 20. Well, I'll read with you real quick. Do you open your Bibles if you have them? This is 5, verse 17. Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless... Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, 
will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These are Christ's words. Jesus, by way of introduction to his magnum opus, his Sermon on the Mount, it was called that way, precedes these six sayings that we're going to be looking in in the weeks ahead. Those sayings that follow our text today say that you have, where he speaks to the disciples, he says, you have heard it said by Moses or by the fathers or the, the old people. I say to you, but I say to you, and truly I say to you, they seem to be, and most scholars look at these contradictions or antitheses, antithesis, that is set against, he quotes Old Testament law or standard or principle or precept. He says, but I say to you, and many commentators think that he's just contradicting the Old Testament. But I don't believe these are that at all. Jesus is not necessarily contradicting the law, but bringing law into new intensity, new tensifying light and resonance. One commentator, W.D. Davis, said, it's not antithesis or standing against, but a completion that expresses the relationship between the law of Moses and the teaching of Jesus. And Davis continues, and I'm going to paraphrase here from a much longer quote. I think it's important to understand the difference and this idea of completion of the Old Testament. Jesus brings a new law. Wait a second. I'm ahead of myself. Okay, I just go back a little bit here. Really quickly. It should not take us by surprise that Matthew starts with Jesus declaring from the start of his sermon that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament, which is the meaning of the word law and prophets, but to fulfill them. This, this statement, I came to fulfill, literally means to make full or to fill up. And I think it means that Jesus is telling his disciples here that the whole Old Testament canon primary purpose was to point to him and found its completion in him. He filled up all the scriptures in his person, in his life, in his teaching. And there's really, I think, two ways we can look at this. And I already sort of started going on the second one. But I still need to hit the first one, that all scriptures pointed to in completing themselves in Jesus Christ. Alec Motier said, well, he said, Jesus is the climax as well as the substance in the center of the whole Old Testament. Paul would put it this way. He said, Christ is the end, the telos of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. He's the end goal, the end game, the exclamation point of the Old Testament. It's like there's many strands wrapped around the center core of a cable, the core wire. There are many secondary and supporting themes in the Bible. And I think Matthew covered some of these and showed how they pointed all to Jesus Christ. But these secondary Themes all wind around and support the main core, which is Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, which Matthew states in 1.1. He's the lion and the lamb. 
But that is really not all. Just because Jesus is the completion of every promise in the Old Testament, he did not thereby nullify the Old Testament. He has also fulfilled it by intensifying it and bringing it to a deeper significance and true application. That's why Matthew sets the scene on a mountain. He wants us to see that Jesus is like the true and greater Moses, proclaiming his new law and intensifying that. Jesus is the true and greater Moses. So back to where I was, the six sayings that follow our text today, the, but they say to you, but I, your fathers have heard it said, you have heard it said, but I say to you, are not contradictions, not antitheses said to be against it, but more of a completion of it. He is the completion in it through his teaching his life of every promise and command of the Old Testament. And Davis here, and back to my paraphrasing, he said, Jesus brings a new law, a new interpretation of the law on his own authority over and superseding the Old Testament. Yet, his way of saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is not so much revolutionary or radical. It's not simply a sweeping way of the law or nulling it or abolishing it, but it's more like an unfolding of the scriptures in new dimensions and new depths. And Jesus brings a whole new dimension to the law, a completion, that's probably a good word for it, by changing it in accordance with its own intentions. He changes it in accordance with its own intentions. Yet at the same time, he intensifies his demands, reinterprets the law in a higher key. I mean, I think worship, we modulated three times. Did you notice that? We modulated three different times this service. Modulation is when you... Jump a key in the song, in the chorus. It's the same words, same verses, but there's a new dynamic that comes in, right? Your, your soul gets lifted up, right? When that modulation happens in Jesus, friend of... It's like, that's good, right? That's what Jesus did. He just sang the new te- Old Testament in a new key. So he doesn't annul it, the provisions of the law, the prophets, but he carries them out to their new and ultimate meaning. That's how he fulfilled the law in the second way. It's almost like he expresses the law in the way it's always meant to be. So the point here is that in fulfilling the scriptures, Jesus did not relax the scriptures. He reaffirmed the scriptures by intensifying them, completing them through his life and teaching. And this is the reason for his following words in verse 18. If you look at the text, he says, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke, the dot of I or cross T shall pass in law until all is accomplished. In other words, in the end of creation, when there's a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, then the law will cease. But not a trace in the meantime will pass. That's pretty profound. Especially in light of Jesus fulfilling, you know, the sacrificial offering system, the ceremonial system, even some of the food, um, the cultic practices of Israel in himself. So let's try to just get this on the ground, shed a little light on this. First, the scriptures pointed to Christ. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? If he says not a heaven, nothing shall pass away of this law, the Old Testament and the prophets, the Old Covenant, excuse me, the, the, the Old Testament scriptures, until he returns, what does it mean to us? And I suggest here, let these scriptures continue to do so in you. 
if they pointed to Christ, let these scriptures continue to do so in you until he returns. I think it's remarkable Jesus' first gift, very first gift to the disciples upon his resurrection before he ascended into heaven was that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Beautiful. He said, these words which I have spoke to you while I was with you, that all things were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the whole Testament must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The scriptures, and I'm including the New Testament because I believe the New Testament is also the word of Christ. The scriptures don't lose their power riches just because Christ fulfilled them. They retain, retain their riches because they always point us to Christ and form Christ in us. They appoint us to Christ and form Christ in us. So let them be the signpost to Jesus, pointing to him until his presence comes and we reach our destination. So let them continue to point to Christ until we return. Secondly, as the scriptures were reaffirmed, intensified by Jesus Christ, Let the scriptures reaffirm themselves in you by intensifying themselves in you. Let the word transform you into Christ's image. And Matthew is sharing the last couple weeks, 2 Corinthians 3, 18 says, But we all with unveiled face are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and through this are being transformed into the same image, the image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory. It's by looking into the mirror of the word of God. Not only do we see ourselves, which I would go get into in the second point in the sermon, but we smear into the glory of God. And by reading his word and meditating on it, we are literally transformed into the image of God. Jim Durkin, one of my favorite preachers, obviously, said that this, his favorite verse was 2 Peter 1.4. Quoted it all the time. He says, by these exceedingly great, he's given us to these exceedingly great and precious promises that by them we may become partakers of the divine nature. God's given this in his precious word, these exceed, in it are these exceedingly great and precious promises. And they are the means in the vehicle to transform us into his nature. What a gift. Do we appreciate the gift of God's word that he's given us? So let the word point to him and let it transform us in the reading of him. So it's, a, it's, it's sort of an inherent command there. It says, read this word. Read everything, the least of the commandments. You can't know the least of the commandments unless you're reading it a lot. So he gives us a warning. If this is the case, Jesus completed the scriptures by intensifying them. He says this, whoever then, therefore, relaxes one of the least of these commandments. In other words, if you don't intensify them, you're relaxing them. You're loosing them. You're annulling them. Don't do the opposite of what Jesus came to do. He came to intensify his word pointing to himself and intensify it in us, to complete it in us. So whoever then relaxes one of these least and so teaches others to do the same, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if you minimize scripture, Jesus' words here, frankly, are you will be minimized. 
They're the same word, least and least. You minimize the least, you shall be least. And that stands as a stern warning, warning to us today. Now, to understand, Scripture, we believe, provides everything necessary for faith and practice, belief and action. And we believe the Scripture speaks into every area of our lives, every area, family, home, business, relationships, community, church, and we all have the struggle. I do. And there's a normal process, a sincere struggle and wrestling with the commands of the word of God. And that's okay. As Jim Durkin told me, you, when you go to the scriptures, like scriptures on giving. Scripture that I love, no, to he who scatters increases all the more. It just doesn't make sense that we, I can give more and somehow that becomes the process, the means of getting more. But it's true. But there is a warning here for all of us today. If Jesus intensifies God's commandments, and I believe that's what he's saying here through his life and his teaching, into a new, greater reality, he intensifies them into a new, greater The warning here is don't ever strive to relax them. Don't relax the good grip of God's commandments on your life. Even if you don't understand them. There are some Christians, and the ones to whom I think Jesus is referring to here, who would have the goal to prove God's word wrong. By adding, as Jim Durkin would say, but we know. This is what the word of God says, but we know. Given our culture, if Bible teaches into sexuality and gender roles and marriage and child raising and money and church and neighborhood, God forbid, Jesus is saying, that you relax any of the commands regarding any of these things and say, but we know better. That's the warning. It's sort of the story of my life, I think, really. My life message, do the word. And by the way, if this is the kind of relation that we expect God to be, a God who can never cross our will, can never disagree with us, must always fit into our expectations, our cultural understanding of what he should be like, what kind of God is that? And Keller does that so well talking about that. What kind of God is it that's, he's a robot. He's a yes man. I mean, even human relationships cannot exist. If you have a wife or a spouse that never disagrees with you, right? If there's no reciprocity in the relationship, it's not considered a human relationship. If you can't speak into somebody and they can't speak back to you, that is not a relationship. How much less, well, how much greater is it and how foolish it is For mankind to say, God, I want you to be made in my image. It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. It's a fearful thing to take lightly his word. That's the warning here when he says, whoever relaxes one of these commandments, he shall be called least. 
But there's another important point here that's so easily missed in this text. Is that word in the Greek is hutos, which means thusly. Which many translations don't even put in there. The ESV doesn't. The New American Standard does. I'll let Bruner, the commentator, comment on this, what this means. When we loosen scripture, our loosening has the effect of teaching others to do the same. When we loosen scriptures, relax them, our loosening, the action, has the effect of teaching others. And he continues, says, this is the meaning of a connection that is so barely visible in this verse. He goes like this, whoever loses these scriptures and so, hutos, thusly teaches others. This and so, quotes, means that our way of living with scripture teaches others by example or anti-example how to live the scripture. Therefore be warned, he says, if you live with scripture in a loose or non-committal ways, you will teach others to live that way too. And the principle here is to do is to teach. Doing is teaching. Doing is teaching. That's Augustine's words, actually. And here's how I would say it. The word must become a mirror into your own life before it can ever be a window into others. The word must become a mirror into your own life before it can ever be a window into others. Another way we would say, you cannot transfer to someone else, and this is no more true than in the family. You cannot transfer to someone else, to your children, to your wife, to your spouse, that which is not already your own. You cannot transfer to someone else something that you don't already possess. I think that's what Jesus, on one level, is saying here. And James echoes this in James 1.21. He says, therefore put away all, that filth, all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive the word of God planted in meekness, which is able to save your souls. But then he continues, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Let that sink in a little bit. Be doers, not hearers, deceiving yourself. If you're not being shaped by something, by the word of God, you will be shaped by something else. That's the clear and massive truth here. If you're not dwelling, living, abiding, meditating in this word, obeying it, even if you don't understand it, even if it doesn't make sense, you will be influenced by other things. You will be shaped, and James's word is you will be deceived Forever, if anyone is a hearer of the word, not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. There's that mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, law of liberty, there's that law. And James calls it a law that brings freedom. Freedom. Blessing. How blessed is the man who meditates on this law day and night. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord and walks in his way, Psalm 128 and Psalm 1. It's a perfect law. It's a law of liberty. And this man perseveres being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. 
he will be blessed in his doing. These words echo back to me, the words of Jim Dickern that when he spoke to me when I was 17 years old. And this may be exactly what Jesus is pointing to when he points to the scribes and Pharisees and rebukes them, essentially. I think the scribes and Pharisees are so busy being a window that they never found time to look at themselves in the mirror of God's word. They were so busy looking into other people's lives. They never found the time to look at themselves in the mirror of God's word. And these are Christ's words in verse 24. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not. In the Greek, that's ume. He said, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of God. Now we're not just talking about less. We're talking about rejection. And I know this means so much more there, but I want to just focus on this one aspect of mirror and windows. We can certainly talk about our righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees because we have, have an alien righteousness, right? Given to us through Jesus Christ, through his atoning death and resurrection. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Rock solid, absolutely true. There's no way we can achieve the righteousness of the law or any of the righteousness in regard apart from the massive grace of Jesus Christ. But there is something I think Christ is trying to teach us today. If anyone in Israel kept the whole law, it was the scribes and the Pharisees, right? The scribes were the appointed Bible teachers. The Pharisees were the appointed Bible doers. Teach, do. And there was an old saying that said that if only two people made it to heaven, one would be a scribe, the other one would be a Pharisee. That's how much these men were venerated, right? Yet look what Jesus says to them in Matthew 23. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They had this authority of office. Traditionally, the chair of Moses was handed down generation to generation and from which the law was dispensed and expounded. So they seated themselves in this authority of office. They have the office. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and they do not do them. They had the authority of the office, but they had no real spiritual capital, no real spiritual authority. They were NSF funds in the bank account because of their lives. They had no real influence because they're sayers and not doers. They're always using the word as a window, intruding into others' lives and not letting the word become a mirror in their own first. Now, Jesus is not saying that we can't be a window. He's just saying it is it is imperative that it's first a mirror. That's all he's saying. It's not wrong to speak into each other's lives, but it's wrong to do it if we can't apply it first to us. And that's his, his example in this teaching is the example of the speck in the eye and the log you own. He says, first have some introspection. Look at what's going on in your own eye before you look into somebody else's eye. He says, then he says, when you have figured out how to solve this problem in you, then go for it. Because then I suspect you'll be much more merciful, much more kind, much more gracious. Because your fellow partakers 
and experience the same struggles. You know, years ago, you know, I, I run oil change place, and years ago, 15, 20 years ago, I had this brilliant idea that we're going to give pastors free oil changes, you know. And so we, we sent out a letter to all the pastors in the region, said, you can come here and get a free oil change, you know. And they start coming in. And I remember one specific time. Well, it started, I hear, started hearing this refrain from my employees. They're saying, these guys are not, what I would say, not good news. They're bad news. They say they don't buy anything else. They're cheap. They're condescending. And some of them come in really nice. Like when I was there, once one guy came in this Lexus SUV with the gold trim, right? You know, the gold ring. And I, and, you know, I don't mean to be condescending myself to pastors and ministry stuff. But I watched this guy as he treated my employee so rudely when he was getting a free oil change. And then the guy had the gall to bring in his two kids' cars and try to get the free oil change. And the straw that broke the camel's back was this. One guy, and believe me, there were some sincere, honest pastors who were so grateful, small, small hundred people churches or 50 just saying, oh, we're driving in beaters. And, but the straw that broke the camel's back on this was one pastor came in and as he was leaving, he told my employee, he says, you know, if it wasn't for these free oil changers, I would not come here. I go, that's it. I'm done. You know. And we've all heard the story of the server at the restaurant, right? The server at the restaurant. I remember in the old days, I had another business, and we'd meet in the restaurant in the morning, have coffee, and discuss the week with my managers. And I asked the waiters, waitress, I said, I bet it's really great coming here, serving tables on Sunday afternoon after church. And she just rolled her eyes. She goes, no, that's the least desired shift of anybody in the whole restaurant. And I go, well... It begs the question, why? Right? And she just says, they're cheap, <laughs> they don't tip, they're picky, and they make a dang mess. You know? <laughs> so, sometimes, which is bad news. And, okay, right now even, you look, look at me, look at me, look at me. You could be sitting here right now, <laughs> applying this very sermon to me. Or to your spouse next to you. You could be hearing why I'm preaching. There's, yeah, the Bible needs to be a mirror before a word. Why doesn't my spouse get it? I mean, this year, this week, this week, you know, I, I, I have spoken unkind words. I've been impatient. I've sinned. I have sinful thoughts. I've been angry. So come on. Be a window into my life. We'll compare notes Monday. You know, I'll give you my list. You know. That's Jesus' warning here. Be good news before you can ever be good news in anybody else's life. It applies everywhere, work, church, neighborhood. There's no more clearly seen and more, no, no more important than in the home. You know, when we started this church nine years, seven years ago, I remember Matt later on talked about this legacy and the heritage and seeing, being a church that existed 25, 50 years from now. And we're even considering merging with a church that has been around at least that long, but there's nobody there anymore. 
They lost their kids. Somewhere along the process, the next generation didn't come through. And I think if you can hear anything in this message, fathers, mothers, spouses, we talk a lot about ethos. And essentially, I think that's what Jesus is talking about right now. He says, your life must match your confession. Your life must have integrity in connection with what you're speaking into other people's lives if you really, truly want to have a long-term effect. If we fathers are going to have a long-term influence on our kids, we have to, to have an ethos, a life, a way of living that reflects the very word that we say is important. You cannot transfer anything to your children that is not already your own. You cannot transfer anything to anybody that is not their own. Jesus says the disciple is like his teacher. If you're living your life in contradiction to what the word of God says, and you're trying to tell your kids that to be a generous giver, and yet your, 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 your life display is, is, is a blatant lack of generosity... Don't expect them to end up generous. Don't expect them to be loving if you're not loving. Don't expect them to submit to love to a local church unless you love and serve the local church. Don't expect them to love unbelievers if you're not first good news to your neighborhood. Doug Wilson in Father Hunger, likens the authority of office, which all of us fathers have, to, to, like, to spiritual authority. The authority that takes responsibility and obedience and submitting to God's word as spiritual authority to like a checking account. And here's what he says. The authority of office is like having the right checkbook with you. That is your name in the upper left-hand corner. It is your address, your account number. You are authorized, the authorized signatory on the account. But the other kind of authority, the spiritual authority, is like having money in the bank. If a man is bouncing checks left and right, it would not do good for him to complain that he still has checks left. (laughs) I've seen many fathers who tried to write a big check that their children would clear for them. And they demanded that their children do this because they could prove from the Bible that it was their checkbook. That makes sense? You have a daughter who's going to go off and, and consider dating a biker. And the father says, I have a checkbook, but, but it's NSF. Because he hasn't invested that decade or 20 years of living before his kids as a transparent, humble man under the word of God. He says, I've spent many times counseling sessions trying to explain to a hapless father that his count had insufficient funds. Doing is teaching. Now lastly, a promise. What Jesus demands, he will provide. If Jesus fulfilled the word of God in his life, by fulfilling it, his promise is to fulfill it in you. That's the promise. Whoever keeps and does them, teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And every command of scripture inherent in it is the promise to obey it. So I just challenge you today, if you're not in the word, take one step of obedience today. What is that step for you? Giving? Could it be a profound act of forgiveness? 
could be choosing to not be a window, but to finally, to, to get once again, look in the word of God and examine your own heart. Could be starting a new habit, reading the word every day. Could be service. There's so many things. Obeying God's word is just like taking a first step, like a baby learning to walk. Even if you don't understand it now, just obey it. Understand will come. It may not make any sense right now, but your faith will someday become sight. And that step of obedience, I assure you today, is freighted with significance and promise. It's like those priests crossing the Jordan River, the flooding Jordan River before they reached the promised land, and the Jordan did not recede until they put their foot in the river in faith. You know, there's so many promises. Faithful is he. He who is faithful in little will be faithful in much. To him who has shall more be given. John 8, 32. If you keep my word, you'll be my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. <laughs> free. And who the Son sets free shall be truly free indeed. John 15 said, if you abide my word and my word abides in you, you shall ask whatever you want and it shall be granted to you. Everything. And of course, Psalm 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in a scornful way but comes under the word of God. The Bible says his roots are planted deep by the rivers of living water and whatever he does in season and outside, he prospers. And my old pastor repeated to us many times in reading Psalm 37, I've been young and now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. Your life can be a predictable certainty. Oh yes, there will be troubles. There'll be setbacks. There'll be missteps, crises, and disappointments. And some of them may even feel like they're catastrophic right now to you. Irrecoverable disasters. But God's promise to you today is that he can make your lines fall in pleasant places. And all it takes is a step of obedience. One step turns into two, and two into 20, and 20 into 400, and 400 into 10,000. Pretty soon you look back at the end of your life, at a life well lived with no regret. Because if God's word is true, that's his promise to you. That's his promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again. Lord, for allowing a feeble servant like me who's made so many missteps and miscalculations and errors and sinful behavior, Lord, to still have the confidence, Lord, to share that your word is still true. Your word is faithful. You will accomplish everything your word commands and provides for. Thank you again for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he fully obeyed He fully taught, he fully lived, he fully incarnated the word of God in his life so that now his faithfulness is now ours. That's the promise, Lord. Give us grace to take a step. Give us grace to move without fear. In your great name we pray, amen.